Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Ten years old, raped, six weeks pregnant, already traumatized, was forced to travel to another state. Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl, ten years old. This story really took off when Joe Biden referenced it in a speech he gave. And he held this up as this very, you know, emotional, outrageous example of what was happening in the country without the protections of Roe versus Wade. And that spurred a lot of speculation from the right that, you know, this was an invented story, etc. We haven't found any evidence that this child rape was reported to law enforcement or any child welfare system. And neither has the Washington Post. I think, you know, stories that are this horrible and and worse are just going to keep coming. And we need, as reporters, to be prepared to, you know, handle this with the nuance and sensitivity required. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. I'm Alice Miranda Olstein. I cover healthcare, including abortion, for Politico. On the show today... Alice Miranda Olstein on the saga between one doctor and one 10-year-old patient that has put Indiana on the front lines of the post-Roe War. First, could you just give me a brief timeline of events here? So from what we know, the crime of the rape of this child was reported to police on June 22nd. On June 24th, Roe versus Wade was overturned and Ohio's six-week abortion ban went into effect. And because the child was just a couple days over six weeks of pregnancy, a few days later, on Monday, June 27th, an Ohio doctor called a doctor in Indiana, where abortion was still legal for a longer period of pregnancy to ask if she could send the child over there for an abortion to be treated. And then on June 30th, a few days after that, the girl went to Indianapolis and had that abortion. And all of this really blew up. More recently, the abortion provider in Indiana spoke about the case, you know, didn't give any identifying details, but said that happened, raised it up as an example of what was happening in a post-Roe America. And you had a lot of elected officials and media pundits jumping in and saying that they didn't believe this had really happened and questioning whether uh, this story was invented. Then on Wednesday, the Columbus Dispatch reported that an Ohio man had actually been arrested and charged with raping the young girl, basically confirming that the case was real, right? Right, exactly. And so a lot of the folks who had been trying to discredit the story, sort of had to eat their words. A lot of them immediately pivoted to the identity of the accused person, who is a person of color and an immigrant. And so now there is an effort also to go after the abortion provider. Right. The Indiana Republican Attorney General announced these potential criminal charges against the doctor, even though the abortion had been legal in Indiana? They said this was because she didn't report it? 
So he said that he was looking into whether she followed all the right steps and filed all the right paperwork to the health department and to the child services department, which is required. By definition, a 10-year-old cannot consent, so a crime of rape took place. So he came out and alleged that she may not have done that and threatened prosecution and A few hours later, myself and other reporters obtained the reports in question, which were dated to show that the doctor did file them on time. So we reached back out to the AG's office, and he says he's still continuing to investigate, and this is an open case. But on that particular front, it appears that the doctor followed exactly the letter of the law, which makes sense. Abortion providers right now know they're under the most intense scrutiny possible. Right, because it is still legal in Indiana. Yes, it is, although it may not be for long. So one of the elements here is obviously the travel from Ohio to Indiana. I'm curious just about interstate travel for abortion. Is your sense that this is happening a lot? It is happening a lot. It was already happening a lot before Roe versus Wade was overturned, just because some states only had one abortion clinic left and couldn't serve everyone in the state. Some states had a lot of restrictions that, even though they weren't total bans, made it impossible for some people to get an abortion there. So you already had a lot of people going out of state. But that has just exploded since Roe versus Wade went into effect, and more than a dozen states have banned abortion, with more on the way. And so you are seeing a ton of travel. You are seeing people uh, seeking out medication, abortion, abortion pills online. Not everyone is able to travel, but you know those who are, are doing so. And there is a lot of uncertainty about the ability to travel in the future and what conservative officials may do to try to prevent people from traveling or threaten repercussions if they do or threaten repercussions against doctors in other states that treat patients who are traveling. And I think that this story is also an example of even if officials can't prevent something from happening, they can create a very intimidating environment for Mm. both patients and abortion providers. So, you know, There's a lot of fear around the right to travel. You know, it's not like there's going to be checkpoints set up, you know, with armed guards interrogating people at the state borders, but they can do things like this, very publicly threaten criminal prosecutions and create an atmosphere of fear where people won't even want to attempt to whatever it is, travel, order medication, abortion online, et cetera. We're seeing entire regions of the country very swiftly losing abortion access. And more and more people are flocking to, you know, the few states that are becoming islands in the Midwest, in the South, that where abortion is still legal. And so right now, Indiana is getting a lot of patients from Ohio and the surrounding states. When Indiana takes up bills to ban abortion in the coming weeks, they could potentially also flip. And then you will have an even higher volume of patients going to places like Illinois, for example. So there is going to be a bigger and bigger burden on the few states left in those areas where the procedure is still available. I also think it's important to look at what states' exemptions for their abortion bans are on paper versus how that could actually play out in real life. So 
you're seeing a lot of people right now saying, oh, well, the 10-year-old should have been able to get the abortion in Ohio, shouldn't have had to leave the state, should have been able to qualify for one of the state's exemptions to the abortion ban, but (laughs) they were not. Those bans are very vaguely worded and can be hard to actually avail yourself of one of those exemptions. So I would also urge just because there is an exemption on paper, I would, you know, talk to the people who are grappling with this on the ground to see how that's playing out in person. Yeah. I'm curious about the sort of media element of this, that it, you know, it became a huge story, obviously, after Joe Biden mentioned it in a speech, but also just in general, because there was just that one source, Dr. Caitlin Bernard. And it was sort of a difficult story to fact check. And I just want to get into some of that with you, like as a reporter, because there are often reasons that documentation of an abortion, particularly a case involving minor and rape, is hard to come by. So how do you think about covering stories like this when you can't get people on the record? Absolutely. I mean, we should be aware that it's not it's not suspicious that officials were not ready to just turn over a bunch of potentially sensitive information to reporters about a child who was a survivor of rape and who had an abortion. Obviously, there are a lot of privacy protections there. So I think that reporters have to be really careful in approaching these kinds of stories. And this is really the first that's blown up since Roe versus Wade fell. It absolutely will not be the last. Abortion providers have told me that they see a lot of patients who are young, more than more than a lot of people realize. So we need to be really careful and not assume that just because there is not a lot of very readily available documentation that something is not true. It was also, I saw a lot of pundits questioning the abortion provider who was the sole source initially for this information and labeling her an activist rather than a medical provider. I also would say that there has been a lot of stock placed in law enforcement confirming this case. I would say that reporters need to be just as skeptical of law enforcement sources as we are of every other source. We need to be critical and vet information, whether it's coming from law enforcement or an elected official or a medical group or whoever. So we all need to be very critical. Don't be too quick to believe, but don't be too quick to dismiss either. As a reporter, how do you approach all this? I mean, you're a national political reporter. These are state and regional stories. It's not just how in your beat you go about finding these stories and keeping track of them. I mean, this clearly went viral. But how do you personally think about approaching these? Yeah, I mean, so I I wish I could cover, you know, all of these stories. It's not possible. You have to pick and choose and prioritize. And so, you know, I'm really zeroed in on there's the states that are definitely going to ban There's the states that are definitely going to protect abortion. There are states that are really at this tipping point, like Indiana. And that's sort of where I'm focusing. I also, you know, recently traveled to Michigan, which is another state that's sort of teetering, teetering on the brink, could go either way. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of concern that the remaining states where abortion is legal, there just won't be the capacity to serve all of those patients. There just won't be enough doctors, won't be enough clinics. And so, you know, we're watching this play out in real time. Alice Miranda Olstein, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. 
Also in the news, a group working to elect Democratic attorneys general in state elections saw a massive bump in fundraising in the second quarter of this year, narrowly outraising Republican counterparts as laws regulating abortion rights head to states. And on Thursday, the House approved the National Defense Authorization Act, the second year in a row that Democrats and Republicans worked together to pass a significant increase to President Joe Biden's original spending request. The $839 billion National Defense Authorization Act was approved in a 329 to 101 vote, and it's $37 billion more than the administration sought in military spending. And I wanted to let you know that we are taking a summer break. And so this is the last episode of Dispatch for now. But stay subscribed and don't go anywhere because I'm really excited for you to listen to the next project that Politico is cooking up. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dispatch's senior editor is Raghu Manavalan. The executive producer and head of audio here at Politico is Jenny Ament. And on a personal note, it's been so fun for me to host Dispatch these past few months. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.